You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Yat A Forefront Church. It is an honor to be with you today, and I am thankful for this opportunity to preach in your service today. Please allow me to introduce myself. Yat E, Mark Charles Yinishya, Tsin Bake Dene Anishle, De Tohiglini Bashishin, Tsin Bake Dene Dasha Chedo to Rachini Dashinala. In our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineal as a people, and our identity comes from our mother's mother. Now, my mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and that's why I say Tsin Dene'e. Loosely translated, that means I'm from the Wooden Shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Toa Higlini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsin Dene'e. And my fourth clan, my father's father, is Tolochini. That's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I also want to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you today from what's now known as Washington, D.C., but these are the traditional lands of the Piscataway. The Piscataway, they're the nation that they were living here, hunting here, farming here, fishing here. They were here long before Columbus got lost at sea, and they are still here. And I want to honor the Piscataway people as the hosts of these lands. I want to thank them for their stewardship of these lands. I want to just publicly state how humbled I am to be living on these lands today. Let me start with a word of prayer. Creator Ahiahat, we thank you for the new day. We thank you for the sun that rose. We thank you for the food we've had to eat. We are so grateful for everything that you provided us with. We're grateful for a new day. We're grateful for a chance to continue to invest in our relationships and continue to walk in this creation that you've placed us. I ask today, Creator, that you will bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of my spirit as I speak and teach and preach to your church. I pray that I will not stand in the way, but your will will be accomplished. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've spent the last few weeks trying to get to know you a little bit as a church. And I've talked to some of your leadership and I've spent some time on your website. And I was actually really excited about the things I was learning. I was thrilled about your values for uncommon kinship and radical, not even equality, but equity. I was thrilled by your theological distinctiveness of LGBTQ inclusion and anti-racism. A lot of your values and what you're striving for as a church are actually very similar to the stuff I'm working towards myself. I'm the co-author of a book called Unsettling Truth, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery. I've been researching and learning about this heretical doctrine that's been embedded into the foundations of not only the church, but our nation and has been used for centuries to dehumanize, marginalize people and has been used to justify things like the enslavement of African people and the ethnic cleansing and genocide of native peoples. I've been working towards trying to address these issues within our country, calling for a national dialogue on race, gender, and class, 
calling for the creation of a common memory so that we might be able to build a better community. When I ran for president in 2020, my vision was to build a nation where for the very first time, we the people might actually mean all the people. As I've worked within the church for nearly my entire adult life, I've been trying to help the church recognize the way it's complicit within this doctrine of discovery and what we need to do to begin to acknowledge the humanity of the entire community. And so I want to speak to you today as partners, as co-laborers, as friends in this work that we are trying to do together. And I want to discuss something that we need to have a discussion on, and that discussion we need to have is, why is this work so hard? Right? It's been 2,000 years. Jesus died on the cross and reconciled all of creation back to Creator over 2,000 years ago. Why in 2021 are we still struggling, not just as a nation, as the world, but as a church, to acknowledge people's humanity? to be radically inclusive, and to embrace deep diversity. Why do we struggle with this so hard? I think one of the reasons we struggle with this is because we don't have a good understanding of where we are written into the gospel story. Now, I'm not talking about me as a Navajo man or you as who you are, but I want to talk in broader categories the categories that are actually defined in the Bible, the category of Jew versus Gentile. Because whether I identify as Navajo on my father's side or as white on my mother's side, I'm a Gentile. I'm assuming most of you in the church are also Gentiles. And we need to wrestle with where is it that Gentiles get written into the gospel story? Now, Western Christianity for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years, have written themselves into the gospel story by claiming to be the new Israel, by claiming that they are God's chosen people, and by claiming that they can, they can have hold on or claim to the covenants and the promises that God spoke throughout the Old Testament. Right? This is why this nation claimed a manifest destiny. This is why the nation has a doctrine of discovery and uses that to justify the enslavement of African people and the ethnic cleansing of native peoples. Because when you have promised lands, according to the book of Deuteronomy, you have God's permission to commit genocide. And so when Western Europe claims that they are God's chosen people, when they claim that they are the new Israel, when they claim that they have a doctrine of discovery and a manifest destiny, this justifies their incredibly violent actions towards marginalized people. And so one thing we just have to recognize, and I say this in churches whenever I can, especially when I'm talking to white evangelicals, I say, you are not God's chosen people. You do not have a land covenant with the God of Abraham, and Turtle Island is not your promised land. You're Gentiles, just like me. You need to understand where you get written into the gospel story. So we're not written in in the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament is about God's covenantal relationship with the people of Israel. Well, how about the New Testament? 
we read the Gospels. And the challenge is we have a written theology and a practice theology regarding the inclusion of the nations into the Gospel story. The written theology is actually on your website. You state it very clearly. You say Jesus is at the center of everything we believe. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is vital to our faith, practice, and spiritual journey. Right? This is, this is a very good understanding of the faith, of the journey that we're on. I absolutely agree with everything that you say in that vision. However, that's not our practice theology. Our practice, so if our, if our written theology says that reconciliation with Creator and inclusion into the gospel story happens at the resurrection, happens at the death and the rising of Christ and his triumph over sin. This is when the curtain tears. This is when we have access into the Holy of Holies. If that is our written theology, but our practice theology says, what would Jesus do? Right? Our practice theology says that that inclusion, that acceptance began not with the death and resurrection, but with the birth. And so we treat Jesus's ministry as a model of what we think inclusion should look like, not recognizing that his earthly ministry took place before the sacrifice was made, before that reconciliation was enacted. And so we point to Jesus's ministry and we say, this is what a ministry of inclusion looks like. What would Jesus do? Well, the problem is, is Jesus' ministry had some very challenging aspects of it, and he was not very inclusive, not of Jews, but of Gentiles. He was radically inclusive of anyone remotely associated with Judaism, right? It didn't matter if you were a tax collector, a sinner. It didn't matter if you worked as a prostitute, or if, even if you were a Samaritan. Right? Jesus was radically inclusive of you. If you had leprosy, he would touch you. If you had a tax collector, he would go into your home. If you were a Samaritan, he would go into your villages. Right? Jesus was radically inclusive of anyone remotely associated with Judaism. But his interactions with Gentiles were much different. In Matthew chapter 8, a Roman centurion, a Gentile, has a servant who is sick. And he wants him healed. So he calls on Jesus. He is a good friend of the Jewish community. He understands the people. And he asks Jesus to come. And the people say you should go to him. Because he's actually a, a good... He helps our people. So Jesus goes. And he's on his way to go to heal his servant. And the centurion, this Roman Gentile who knows the Jewish people and understands what's going on, he knows that several things will happen if Jesus comes into his house. He knows that that will make Jesus unclean and will cause him to go through a long process of cleansing himself afterwards. And so that will take a long time. He's also very aware that Jesus is well-respected and a, a, a well-known teacher in the community and that if he goes into the home of a Gentile, it might cause disruption and even chaos socially in the community. 
And so as Jesus gets closer to his home, he sends his people out and he stops Jesus and says, you don't have to come in. I understand how this works. I understand authority. I say to this servant, go and he goes. So that one come and he comes. I said, he said, you don't have to come into my home. Just speak the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus is impressed and maybe even relieved, right? He's like, wow, you get it. In all of Israel, I haven't found such faith. And he heals the servant remotely. Now, what's striking about this is that Jesus doesn't go into his house, right? Whenever Jesus encounters great faith, he rewards it with incredible inclusiveness and acceptance. When the lepers come to ask Jesus for healing, he doesn't just heal them, he touches them. When the bleeding woman comes and steals a healing and touches Jesus' cloak. Jesus doesn't just heal her. He listens to her entire story and welcomes her back into the community, right? Jesus goes over the top whenever anyone demonstrates great faith. And so here, the centurion, this Gentile man, Jesus acknowledges you have great faith. He is so impressed, but he doesn't do anything except just a simple healing. He doesn't go into his home. He doesn't break bread with him. He doesn't show how much he loves him and communes with him. He heals him and then goes on his way. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus crosses the sea and goes into Gentile territory. There he's confronted by a man known as a demoniac who wasn't just possessed by a demon, but had many demons inside of him. Jesus heals him. He casts out those demons. They go into pigs and they run into the sea. And the man is sitting in front of Jesus in his right mind. And as Jesus gets ready to go on his way, the man begs Jesus to let him follow him, begs him. And Jesus says, no, go back to your own people and tell them what God did for you. He does not let this Gentile follow him. In Matthew chapter 15, a Seraphonician woman, Canaanite woman, comes to Jesus. Her daughter is possessed by a demon. She wants Jesus to heal her. Jesus states publicly, loudly, clearly, I have come only for the lost sheep of Israel. But the woman still asks and says, will you heal my daughter? And Jesus says, why would I give to the dogs what was meant for the children? Right now, I've been in the church long enough. I've preached enough sermons. I've preached a sermon where you can make Jesus look good in that interaction. You've probably heard sermons preached that same way. But if we're honest, if we're really honest, that interaction is not loving. Not only does Jesus draw a clear distinction, you are a Gentile and a woman, and I am a Jew. Why would I give to the children what was meant? Why would I give to the dogs what was meant for the children? The woman, Gentile, is the dog in this situation, and the Jewish people are the children. The woman, I love her tenacity. She doesn't, she's not deterred, right? She's like, yes, but even the dogs eat the scraps that come off the table. Jesus is blown away. Wow. Your faith is amazing. What's fascinating is that he doesn't correct her. He doesn't say, my daughter, my child, you're not a dog. You are my child. He doesn't say that. 
He says, you get it. Here's a bone. And then he heals the woman's daughter remotely and then goes on his way. Right? This is, this is Jesus in this scenario appears to hold the ethnocentric views of his time. Now, this is troubling, again, because we have a believed theology and a live, we have a written theology and a, and a practical theology. And our written theology says that Jesus came to keep the law and he was a perfect sacrifice in regards to the Old Testament law. Our lived theology says Jesus, or our believed theology says Jesus loved everybody and he was perfect in everything. Well, Jesus didn't come to keep the moral code of 2021. He came to keep the Old Testament law and to keep that perfectly. And the Old Testament law actually required that he be separate from the Gentiles. Required that he not associate with Gentiles. Required that he not intermingle with the Gentiles. If he was going to be the perfect sacrifice, the blameless sacrifice, he had to be exclusive of Gentiles. So he wasn't sinning. But nor was he being loving. He was holding the ethnocentric views of his time. So then the question, right, now we're all asking, well, then where are we written in? Where do we become a part of the gospel story? Well, Acts chapter 2 is a very common passage to say, yes, look at, at Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit comes and there's people in Jerusalem from all over the world and God enables the disciples to speak the languages of the nations. And this church is planted in their radical community. And it's growing as the people see the blessings of God poured out. This church is often used, the Acts 2 community is often used as a model of diversity and inclusion. But we skip over a very key verse. The verse that says at the very begin, towards the beginning of Acts 2, that there was in Jerusalem at that time Jews from every nation. See, these weren't just Gentiles coming into Jerusalem. These were Jews, proselytes, people who rejected their culture, rejected their traditional religions, and they became Jewish. The men were circumcised. The people lived under the laws of cleanliness. They ate kosher. They went to synagogue. They followed the sacrificial laws of the temple. They were proselytes. They assimilated culturally, linguistically, religiously to Judaism. So the Acts 2 community, while it was much like the American church, there were a lot of different shades of skin in the pews. It was much like the American church, highly assimilated. Highly assimilated. So where do we get written in? Where do Gentiles get written in? Well, this is why we read the entire chapter of Acts 10. In Acts 10, Cornelius, a Gentile, who loves God and gives to the poor, He's praying and he is visited by an angel who tells him to send for Peter. 
Peter, meanwhile, is in Joppa, and he's up on a rooftop praying, and he goes into a trance, and in this trance, he sees a blanket fall down, and this blanket is filled with animals of every kind, most of them unclean, and a voice from heaven tells him to kill these animals and eat them. Now, Peter was with Jesus in Mark chapter 7, when Jesus declared that it's not what goes into you that makes you unclean, but what comes out. And Mark identifies that Jesus was declaring all foods clean. Peter was there when Jesus did that. And yet here in Acts 10, he is definitively saying, Never, Lord, I have never eaten anything unclean. Jesus might have declared all foods clean. We never ate that stuff. And that's true. You read the interactions of Jesus. You look at the gospel stories. Jesus never broke bread with Gentiles. Peter sees this vision three times. It troubles him. He doesn't know what to make of it. Cornelius, his family, people come. He agrees to go with them because of this vision. He walks into their house. He doesn't say, oh, I remember when Jesus did this, right? We went to the centurion's home. He healed the servant. We were there. And like, no, why? Because Jesus didn't do that. Remember, Jesus never went into the centurion's home. So Peter walks into this Gentile's house. And the first thing he says is, I shouldn't be here. You're a Jew. I'm a Gentile. Or you're a Gentile. I'm a Jew. We're not supposed to associate. I shouldn't be here. Had I not seen this vision, I never would have come. But I'm here now. So why don't you tell me why I'm here? Cornelius tells him the story. Peter begins to preach. As he's preaching, he sees the Spirit of God fall on Cornelius and his family, just like the Spirit fell on them at Pentecost. And it was so shocking, so paradigm-shifting, that the circumcised believers who were with him were astonished that the Spirit of God was poured out even on the Gentiles. Three years with Jesus, and they had no clue that this thing was supposed to include Gentiles. Peter sees this and he says, what's to prevent me from baptizing you? What's to prevent me from welcoming you into full fellowship? You have received the same spirit we were given. And so he does this radical action, which is he invites these Gentiles into the full fellowship of the church. This is radically, not only is this in opposition to everything he grew up understanding as a Jewish man, it goes against even everything he saw in the three years he spent with Jesus. But remember, in the Gospel of John, Jesus was encouraging his disciples. And he said, I'm going to go away, but that's actually better for you. Because when I leave, I can then send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will remind you of everything I taught. And the Holy Spirit will enable you to do things even greater than what I've done. And in Acts chapter 10, we see that happen. We see Peter doing something greater than Jesus ever did. He went into a Gentile's home. He preached to Gentile people. He saw the Spirit of God fall on Gentiles and he welcomed them into full fellowship. Jesus never did those things. 
He did not go into the centurion's home. He did not let the demoniac follow him. Why? Because he was living prior to the reconciliation. His ministry took place prior to the sacrifice being made. It was his death and resurrection that opened up the gates that tore the curtain in the Holy of Holies. Jesus' ministry was exactly what he said it was. It was to Jewish people. After he died and was resurrected and ascended into heaven, then he sent his Holy Spirit. And in Acts 10, the Holy Spirit begins to intentionally mix things up. It speaks to Cornelius. It shows Peter a vision. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit falls upon not proselytes, but uncircumcised Gentiles. So why is this work so hard? Why do we struggle so hard to build these radically inclusive churches? Why do we struggle so hard to see true diversity within the body of the church? Because we're following the wrong model. We're not even listening to our stated theologies, which is the resurrection, the death of Christ, is what brings this reconciliation. We're following a model that took place prior to that. Instead of asking, what would Jesus do? We should be asking, what would the Holy Spirit call us to do? How is the Holy Spirit at work in this? The Holy Spirit, just as Jesus promised, came and empowered and even called the disciples to do greater things than Jesus even did. And that's what makes this work so hard, right? Because there's no model. There's no model that we're following. This is absolutely dependent upon the blood of Christ and upon the leading of the Holy Spirit. And that's why the work is so hard. So I want to encourage you, my brothers and sisters. I want to exhort you to allow yourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit to bathe yourself in the blood of Christ, to be reconciled fully back to Creator, and then to allow the Holy Spirit to lead you to do things that even Jesus never did. And let's complete this work of building a radically inclusive and incredibly diverse body of believers. Let me pray for us. Creator Echahat, thank you for such a troubling message. Thank you for not being afraid to turn our worlds upside down so that you can ultimately accomplish your will. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for his death and his resurrection. And thank you for the Holy Spirit that is not content to leave this faith just within the Jewish community, but calls us, leads us, empowers us to build a radically diverse and inclusive church. Creator, may your will be done. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I know this sermon 
will bring up many, many questions and is probably very troubling. I literally have spent the last year and a half wrestling through so many of these issues. After the service, we're going to have a virtual Q&A. I welcome you to come and join us in that time online. I welcome you to bring your questions. I would love to have interaction with you about some of the things that this raises. And I look forward to the conversations that will happen, not just today, but ongoing as we work to do this incredibly difficult task together. Ashahat, my relatives, walk in beauty, and may we learn how to walk in beauty together. Hakonet. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.